subscriber to Green Sports. Good morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, and here are some of the stories we're covering. Cameroon faces long lines of people and vehicles at filling stations amid a spreading fuel shortage. I'm running to be present principally because of the level of lawlessness in the country. A prospective candidate says he's more optimistic about his chances of winning Liberia's 2023 presidential elections after spending the past three months speaking to Liberians across the United States. Some journalists have also been targeted due to perceptions that their work might favor certain political groups. And the Committee to Protect Journalists says Ethiopia now ranks with Eritrea as the biggest jailers of journalists in sub-Saharan Africa. Those and more coming up on Daybreak Africa. A prospective candidate says he's more optimistic about his chances of winning Liberia's 2023 presidential elections after spending the past three months speaking to Liberians across the United States. Councillor Tiawana Gonglu is a former Minister of Labor and former President of the Liberian Bar Association. He says Liberians can change their current situation by voting President George Weir out of office in 2023. Asked what inspired his optimism when, after all, diaspora Liberians cannot vote, Gongli, who hopes to be the candidate of the Liberian People's Party, says diaspora Liberians are the lifeline that is keeping the faltering Liberian economy afloat through the hundreds of millions of dollars a year they send home in the form of remittances. Because of that, he says, the diaspora is more influential because they tell their relatives in Liberia who to vote for. Gongli tells VOA's James Barty he's running to be president to fight corruption, lawlessness, and decentralize the government and the economy. I'm running to be president principally because of the level of lawlessness in the country. There has been selective application to law, and it has always undermined public trust in the government. The other reason I'm running is to combat corruption. While corruption cannot be ended, I think we can do a lot to curtail corruption. We also want to decentralize the government so that power is not concentrated in Monrovia. We want to decentralize the economy. What do you make of the Liberian parliament passing a new anti-corruption law recently? That anti-corruption law is actually meant to water down the power of the anti-corruption commission. It is a conspiracy of the legislature and the executive to weaken the fight against corruption. It is not a good law at all. Councillor, there's ongoing fight within the opposition of Liberia to the point that uh, they have gone to court against each other. If you look at recent elections around Africa, coalition building has helped the opposition defeat the incumbent. Are you open to forming a coalition with either former Vice President Joseph Wakai or Alexander Cummings, or are you going to go it alone? National interest is my motivation. I want what works for Liberia, but I'm not a candidate yet. I'm a presidential aspirant. When I become a candidate, discussions about collaboration, alliances, and all of that, I believe will come out of the party leadership 
that I'll be a part of at the time. But let me say this, that coming together must be based on clear ideas of an analysis of the problems of Liberia and, and agree upon prescription for moving forward. You are from Niba County. That's the same county where Senator Prince Johnson comes from. Mr. Johnson has, over the years, uh, been known or considered himself as the kingmaker in Liberian presidential politics. How strong is your support in Niba County? At the moment, I, I strongly believe that I have over 90% of the support of the people of Nimba. There is a consistency of Nimba people when it comes to any of the prominent sons running for the presidency. They will support me because I'm a prominent son of Nimba. And let me also tell you that the Nimba people do vote for Prince Johnson, but there's no history that he can decide who to vote for in a presidential race. I think I read somewhere where you have been quoted in the local media as saying that re-electing President George Weah would be suicidal for the country. Did you say that? And what do you mean? I said that our country is currently virtually in the ICU, intensive care units. Because if you take food production, for example, the rice that we eat, according to FAO, out of every 100 bags of rice that we eat in Liberia, only less than 20 bags are produced in Liberia. It means we are food insecure. If you go to JFK today as we speak, everything they ask for is not in a hospital. If JFK does not have enough medicine to serve the Liberian people, what do you think about a hospital in Fishtown or JJ Dobbin Hospital in Harper? That's why I'm saying that for our own welfare, for our own protection, a re-election of President George we are would be tantamount to committing suicide. So you've been here in the United States for almost three months. How would you describe uh, the reception you are getting or have been receiving from the Liberian diaspora here about your presidential ambition? I'm more optimistic now than before I came to the United States. I have been to 12 states, hosting more Liberia than other states. And from the reception that I've gotten, especially based on what I've said to them about analysis of the problem in Liberia and the prescription. People like my message. This makes me more optimistic that I will win the election in Liberia by 65% on first round. I think I read on social media uh, someone reacting to the photos on Facebook about your visit, and they said, are they, the diaspora, going to be voting in Liberia? What would you say to that person? That person is a little bit... Uh, naive about the political situation in Liberia. Every year, the Liberians living here send not less than $300 million to Liberia. And because they support their families in Liberia, it is said that you control the better control the minds. They have been influential in telling people who to vote for. So I came to them to speak to them that I've been an advocate all my life. I'm transitioning from advocacy to politics. Councillor Gonglo, it's a pleasure speaking with you on Daybreak Africa, and thank you so much. You're welcome. Councillor Tiawana Gonglo is an aspiring candidate to Liberia's 2023 presidential election. He was speaking from Philadelphia with VOS James Barty. Press Freedom Group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, says Ethiopia now ranks with Eritrea as the biggest jailers of journalists in sub-Saharan Africa. 
Fred Hutter reports for VOA from Addis Ababa. At least 63 journalists and media workers have been arrested in Ethiopia since the Tigray conflict started in November 2020, according to a new report from the Committee to Protect Journalists. The advocacy group, which monitors media freedoms globally, says Ethiopia ranks as sub-Saharan Africa's worst jailer of journalists, alongside Eritrea. Ethiopia long had a reputation for media censorship under the previous government, led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, which is now fighting the federal government. After he came to power in 2018, current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed promised to ease restrictions and to usher in a new era of media freedom. But rights groups have documented a deteriorating media environment since the Tigray War started that has seen several journalists detained, threatened and assaulted. Two local journalists have been killed in disputed circumstances since November 2020, and two foreign correspondents working for the New York Times and The Economist have been expelled from the country. Ethiopia has also seen several communication shutdowns, including in Tigray, which has been without phone and internet services since the TPF retook most of the region in June 2021. Mutoki Mumo, CJP's representative for Sub-Saharan Africa, says the arrested journalists were producing work that was dissenting from the dominant state narrative of the war. Some journalists have also been targeted due to perceptions that their work might favour certain political groups. But through all of this, what we can say is that these arrests indicate a conflation of journalistic work of critical commentary with criminal activity, and that is very dangerous. At least eight of the journalists and media workers whose arrests were documented by the Committee to Protect Journalists remain behind bars. The group says most of the arrests follow a similar pattern, with journalists held in detention for several weeks without having formal charges brought, while the authorities request more time to investigate. Ethiopia's government has previously denied targeting journalists, saying the police have followed due process and only detained those who have broken the country's media laws. Fred Harter for VUA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Members of Tanzania's ruling party of the revolution are among politicians from six African countries who attended the first session of a Chinese Communist Party training school held recently. Critics say the party-to-party training helps China establish closer ties with Africa's ruling elite and undermines African democracy by promoting Beijing's one-party governance model. Charles Combe reports from Chibaha, Tanzania. The Molimu Julius Nyerere Leadership School was opened in February. Located in Kiba near Dar es Salaam, the school was built with 40 million US dollars from the Communist Party of China. It was co-funded by the ruling parties of Tanzania, South Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Namibia and Zimbabwe. School officials say the classes provide a platform for China to enhance exchanges and build a party-to-party diplomacy. Marcelina Chijora is the principal at the Julius Nyerere Leadership School. Chijora says the relationship between China and the school is in funding for buildings and to run the school. But she says she sees another relationship as well. During the first training, she says the Chinese taught students what is happening in China. She asked that they were taught what China did to bring about changes. China has been hosting training classes and exchanges in Africa for decades, as far back as the 1950s. But over the past decade, the events have grown both in number and profile. Analyst Gulak Ningo says the new school 
advances the Chinese Communist Party's model for ruling a country and promotes the party's ideological allies. Kwa Tanzania ni miongoni mwa nchi chache ambazo zimebaki kwamba vyama vya ukombozi. He says Tanzania is among the countries where liberation parties with socialist ideology continue to remain in power. This basically helps China and other countries that still believe in the one party system. Song Ingo as China is ensuring that the leaders who come to the school continue to believe in social politics. Ningo says the training will present problems for activists who want to see their countries become or remain more democratic. Ningo says in politics, if there is no solid constitution that can ensure that what is being done is the opinion of the majority, it will give the opportunity for things to be done by a few. He says deployment of a single-party system is a possibility. He added that there have already been many African countries where a president comes to power and removes other political parties, and the ruling party remains. Fred Msai of Tanzania's Party of the Revolution was among those who attended a recent seminar at the school. He said he sees the school as the blessing from God. Not only that, but also being able to get training from a school named after Tanzania's founding father Julius Nyerere, someone who fought to ensure equality and equity. Therefore, Msai asked, anyone who wants to complete Nyerere's mission should come to this school that will build current and future leaders. Msai sees a bright future for Tanzanian politics due to the presence of the leadership school. But others believe the Chinese teachings will blunt the growth of democracy and only promote friction. Charles Kombe for Viewing News in Kibaha, Tanzania. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, and see to come in our program, fuel shortages in Cameroon. Cameroon is seeing long lines of people and vehicles at filling stations amid the spreading fuel shortage. The shortage, caused in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has led to blackouts in several towns and villages and crippled trade. For VOA, Moki Edwin Kinzika reports from Yaounde, Cameroon. A generator powers a flour-kneading machine at Foundation Bakery, Obili, a neighborhood in Cameroon's capital, Yaounde. Metamp Yusuf, the bakery owner, says he bought the generator on Tuesday after an acute fuel shortage led to power outages that crippled economic activity in Yaounde this week. All vehicles and motorcycles or motorbikes that supply bread in Yaounde and neighboring villages are grounded for lack of fuel. I even acquire a generator, but the bread uh, we bake using the generator is supplied only to those who take to the bakery to buy since our vehicles and bikes can't move. So it's very, very difficult and we are barely surviving. People, motorcycles and cars have been queuing up at petrol stations waiting to be served. 
This week, the government said it is monitoring and has already deployed security in gas stations in the event there are riots due to the fuel shortage. Antoine Essi is a bus driver. Essi says after waiting in quiz for about three hours, Cameroonian police told drivers, motorcycle riders and crowds of people carrying jerry cans that each customer will be served a maximum of 15 liters of fuel. Essi says he bought 15 liters of fuel at one filling station and moved to a second filling station to see if he can purchase more fuel because the 15 liters he was served can't take him to his hometown, Edeya, situated 177 kilometers south of Yaoundé. Cameroon's government says current power outages are caused by an acute shortage of fuel in the Central African state. The government said the 40-megawatt thermal plant that powers Yaoundé ran short of fuel, but gave no further details. The Cameroonian Consumer League, an advocacy group, says businesses have been crippled and perishable goods like vegetables, fish and meat are going rotten. The government said many workers were unable to go to their offices as their vehicles and public transport buses run short of supply. The police ordered gas stations to give priority to ambulances, police and military vehicles until the fuel supply improves. The fuel shortage is caused in part by Western sanctions on Russia following the country's invasion of Ukraine. Cameroon's government says the sanctions have hindered trade with Russia, which supplied more than half of Cameroon's gasoline imports prior to the invasion. In a press release Thursday, Cameroon's Ministry of Mines said it has imported 13 million liters of super, 8.5 million liters of gas oil, and 2.5 million liters of kerosene this week to meet needs in the capital, Yaoundé. That will last only a short time in Yaoundé, which consumes a million liters of super, gas oil, and kerosene each day. The government insists sufficient quantities of petroleum products will be available in the weeks ahead. Cameroon says it budgeted $183 million this year to subsidize petroleum products before Russia's war in Ukraine caused prices to spike. Under current prices, the government says the cost of the subsidies may rise to over $1 billion. Moki. Edwin Kinzuka, for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. Zimbabwe's central bank has introduced gold coins that it hopes will ease citizens' demands for foreign currency. But economists and ordinary Zimbabweans are skeptical, as Columbus Mavunga reports from the capital, Harare. At the official launch of the gold coins in Harare on Monday, Johnny Mangunga head of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe said the coins are designed to reduce demand for US dollars in the country. Zimbabweans are largely shunning the weak dollar in favor of US greenbacks, which Zimbabweans see as more acceptable abroad and better at holding their value long term. 
Mangunja said he hoped that Zimbabweans will now opt for the gold coins, which cost about $1,800 each. We are now providing that store of value to ensure that people do not go to run to the parliament to search for foreign currency as a store of value. And there is no other better product that can be used as a store of value other than gold. And therefore, it means that because we do respect the people of Zimbabwe, we know what we're going through in terms of uh, the fear factor of losing value, and therefore we are providing this gold coin, it's a genuine gold coin, to ensure that it is to sell and invest there. He said 2,000 coins will be manufactured with future production depending on the public's appetite. Prosper Jitambara, a senior researcher and economist at the Labor and Economic Development Research Institute of Zimbabwe, says despite the bank's hopes, he doubts the coins will drastically reduce demand for American dollars. And also even the demand for the U.S. dollar as a store of value to also rise. Because there are still a lot of uncertainties with respect to the convertibility, whether these Gold coins are internationally tradable, uh, especially given issues with um, trust, co- trust and confidence issues. But of course, the expectation is that uh, the demand for the US dollar is going to be moderated, but most people may not have the money to buy this since most citizens are literally living from hand to mouth. One of those Zimbabweans struggling to get by is Christine Kayumba, a high school teacher in Harare. The issue of gold coins to us teachers in Zimbabwe is something that we cannot dream of. It means as a teacher who's getting a salary of 190 to 200 US dollar, would need nine to 10 months to buy one gold coin. So from the $200, I need money for transport to my workplace. I need food, I need rentals. I need money also for sending my children to school. As you can see, the money is not enough, even enough for survival or decent living. So I believe the gold coins were meant for the rich people, not the ordinary teacher or any civil servant in Zimbabwe. Mangunja told reporters Monday that gold coins of lesser value would be minted in future to cater for the people who have fewer resources. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News Harare. Nigerian environmental activist Chima Williams has released a letter calling on the president of Nigeria to intervene on behalf of the Atsino fishermen of Nigeria and hold Shell accountable for an offshore oil spill in 2011. The Bonga spill more than a decade ago wreaked havoc on the lives of thousands in the area. Jonathan Kaufman, the Advocates for Community Alternatives director, tells Ricky Shyrock that now is an opportune time to finally hold the oil company accountable. So this all happened in 2011. Since then, the people who were affected have not had any assistance whatsoever. The Nigerian government did levy a fine, I think it was $1.8 billion, the equivalent, against Shell for their irresponsibility, but that money doesn't go to benefit the communities. That is money that is absorbed by the Nigerian government, and Shell has refused to pay it. That that has been an ongoing battle in court. So now, 11 years later, you've seen, you've seen nothing. And the communities have been left behind. So these are fishermen who 
depend completely on on their catch and their livelihoods have been devastated. They've been struggling to survive for more than a decade since since this bill happened. On what grounds has Shell been able to refuse to pay the over billion dollar fine? They claimed that there was no legal basis for the fine. And now this letter is coming out 11 years later. Why is this good timing for this letter? So we're kind of in the waning months of the Buhari administration. So he has an opportunity to cement his legacy. But maybe another another really delicate issue right now is that Shell is looking after about, I don't know how many decades of operating in the creeks and on onshore in the Niger Delta region. They want to divest all of their onshore operations and focus instead on what they're doing offshore. And they claim that this is part of a strategy to reduce emissions and essentially become a climate change friendly oil company. Um, but what's really happening is that the Niger Delta is an incredibly complicated place to operate. Um, communities have sued Shell in the Nigerian courts, in the American courts, in the Dutch courts, in the British courts, and they have multiple judgments pending against them, including a $1 billion judgment in the Nigerian courts. That was Jonathan Kaufman, Executive Director of Advocates for Community Alternatives. He was speaking from Washington to Ricky Shirock. And that's it for this Wednesday, August 3rd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington, wishing you a very wonderful day.